Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, December 27th, 2021. Happy New Year. On today's show, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim Hill tells us about the time Disney threw Baby New Year off the Matterhorn. God, the 1960s were really different, weren't they? Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that after careful listening, Guns N' Roses has made him feel not at all welcome in the jungle. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Okay, Len. Now, uh, given that Guns N' Roses was formed in 85 and signed with Geffen in 86, you can't really call them contemporaries of Alice Cooper because welcome to my nightmare Seventy five, right? Seventy five, yeah, ten years, ten, ten, fifteen years earlier, yeah. Yeah, but I just came across some stories about Alice Cooper that I have to share. It turns out for all of Alice's makeup and the stagecraft and that sort of thing, it turns out he was like this genuinely nice kid. Yep. Like he when he moved to Hollywood, his first house was literally down the street from the then very elderly Groucho Marx, who suffered from insomnia. So that there were these great stories about how Alice would be home, had you know, just finishing a tour, and the phone would ring at like 11 o'clock, and it's Groucho. It's like, hi, you want to come over and watch a movie? <laughs> Saw your light was on. Yeah. <laughs> I heard that, and I don't know how I remember that, but that's like one of these things like – it's so strange that it, once you know it, you can't unknow it. But he would literally, he'd walk up the street, go into Groucho's house. They'd sit there and watch a movie. Groucho would eventually fall asleep on the couch. And what Alice would do each time is he, first he'd tamp out Groucho's cigar. Then he put a blanket on him. And then as he was leaving the house, he'd lock the door. Yeah. But they became such good friends in 78 when the Hollywood sign was basically falling down off of the, that hillside over Hollywood. The town had to raise $250,000 to recreate the Hollywood sign. And Alice spent $27,500 just to buy the O for the sign and then dedicated it to Groucho. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. They've become friends. And so here's Alice playing at the Universal Amphitheater in the late 70s. And so he mentions the crowds who are playing. So, oh, get me tickets. And it's like, okay. And so Groucho then takes Jack Benny and George Burns with him to an Alice Cooper show. <laughs> an Alice Cooper show. <laughs> And so they're, <laughs> they're wearing turtlenecks and jackets. You yeah. just know it. <laughs> All right. So, so they're sitting there, they're watching the show. And then afterwards they go backstage and Alice is like, well, what'd you think? And the three of them kind of confirm. And it's like, it reminded me of vaudeville. And Alice <laughs> is like, exactly. You get it. Exactly. That's what it's supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just love that. You got it. <laughs> yeah. But I guess Alice has retired to Phoenix due to bronchitis issues. But there are just so many people down there who talk about, I met Alice Cooper today. What a lovely man. You know, very what a lovely gentleman. What a He's lovely so man. kind, so yeah, thoughtful. So yeah. so. <laughs> who would have thought who 40 thought? years ago? Yeah. So. That's fantastic. Great mm. story. Yeah. Arch Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Neil Clare, Ken Cabot, and Ann Bennett. And longtime subscribers, Ryan Pena, David Choust, and Madam Hooch. Jim, these are the folks who've introduced drinks packages and spa treatments to Disney's recently renovated Collie River Rapids in an attempt to get guests to spend even more money in the parks. I'm told that guests will be able to book these through my Disney experience very, very soon. True story. <laughs> What is the sales point? Literally, you're strapped into the raft and then they climb in. And it's like, oh. So one seat is now dedicated to a point of sale terminal, Jim. Ah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> new frontiers. No frontier. New frontiers in marketing. Yeah, I swear. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. So, Jim, uh, I should mention that we're doing our first ever Disney Dish Cruise in 2022. We're calling it the Disney Dish on the Disney Wish. It's September 23rd to the 26th. It's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday out of Port Canaveral. We made it three nights, so it's affordable. I, we haven't mentioned this in a couple of weeks because we had sold out of cabins twice, uh, Jim, but Disney's given us a few more. So we have five cabins. We have one inside cabin left, two ocean views, and two balcony rooms. So if you're interested, storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish. Also, Jim, in preparation for this, mm-hmm. I've been watching every episode of The Love Boat in order. And what I've learned, uh, in addition to the trip planning that I'm working on, is that there was an incredible amount of workplace sexual harassment <laughs> on cruise ships in the 1970s. But more, more shocking, Jim, were the number of ship's officers who were wearing tight white dress shorts. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, there's got to be a maritime regulation against that, Jim. I think they, at one point they did have an intervention with Gavin McLeod. I, you know, I was going to say, geez, <laughs> Gavin. <laughs> Maybe. Put it back on. <laughs> so. All right, Jim, another news. This week, Disney shifted some individual Lightning Lane attractions to Genie Plus for the holidays. So thanks to our friends over at wdwmagic.com for pointing this out. But the attractions that moved from individual Lightning Lane to Genie Plus are Expedition Everest, Runaway Railway, Frozen Ever After and Space Mountain. Hmm. Jim, so what do you think? Uh, what do you think? They're uh, they, Disney did this. I want to applaud the folks from Turing Plans. They had those those shots from the monorail the other day. Oh, yeah, of yeah. The lines of people getting into the park, and it was like mm-hmm. Wednesday before Christmas. So, yeah. is this a make hay while the sunshine move? Do you think? I mean, you know, just sort of like we we have all these crowds in the park, and this would make life that much more profitable for the corporation. Is that the, along the lines you are thinking? I don't think Expedition Everest or Space Mountain were ever great individual lightning lane purchases because the wait times never really hit mm-hmm. the same stratospheric levels as like Seven Doors Mine Train or Rise of the Resistance. Mm-hmm. So it could be that they just weren't getting enough revenue from it. But the I think the bigger concern was, you know, in anticipation of larger holiday crowds, mm-hmm. they might not have had the Genie Plus capacity. Mm-hmm. To make sense uh, for people. So maybe it, my original thought is it's it's a way to uh, provide more rides in Genie Plus uh-huh. for uh-huh. people to do that. So um, And that tells me, too, that probably Genie Plus might be a little bit more popular than the individual Lightning Lane attractions okay. in terms of sales. But I could be wrong on that. All right. But that's my guess. No, it's no, just no. A, it's a capacity move. Okay. That certainly makes sense. I mean, those two weeks around the holidays, I always appreciate what you guys do at Touring Plans during that period where the rules change for oh, yeah. this one window of time. And a typical year, you are going to the parks at the most crowded time of year, and that has to be part of the appeal. You are there with all yeah. of humanity, which in 2021, going into 2022, maybe not quite as popular. <laughs> Slightly less appealing than in years past. There we go. Being in large crowds, but still. Yeah, um, yesterday, uh, Christina, who's been on the show a few times, mm-hmm. did the one hour early entry at the Magic Kingdom and got seven attractions done in the one hour. Pl- and that included, Jim, it's a cinnamon 19- bun. Yes, you know. 19 minute wait for cinnamon <laughs> buns. <laughs> I love your sister. I, but again, it, at the same time, all about priorities. Yeah, yeah, but but seven attractions yeah. inside of an hour. 
then you understand why she needed the cinnamon bun. You got to replenish those carbs. Carb loading, exactly. You got to have the sugar. Yeah, I mean, the seven attractions weren't, you know, none of them were, I would say, headliners. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they were things like Astro Orbiter, Tomorrowland Speedway, um, uh, Mad Tea Party, you know, and such like that. But but still, I mean, if you if you think that even if those attractions had mm-hmm. a 10-minute wait later in the day. Oh, yeah. Right. And, and it would definitely have a longer than 10-minute wait. In the day, you saved more time than you spent, uh, and that's the uh, that's the key. Plus, she was testing out a you know, touring plan for small children, so going on all of the roller coasters was not feasible for a lot of people in those situations. Oh, oh no, no, not at all. But yeah. again, given what she scored in that one hour long period, oh yeah, guest who experiences ten attractions during their day in a theme park feels like they've gotten value, and it's like, yeah, you did all that in the first hour. It's like, oh hell, I can yeah. sit here and, and chew this cinnamon bun for three hours. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> it still be set. There we go. Exactly. Yeah, she did really good. So that's uh, that's interesting to see. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, also, Jim, uh, we heard this week that Typhoon Lagoon reopens January 2nd, 2022. So next week. And I know a lot of people are uh, looking out their windows, Jim, maybe even you, and looking at like three feet of snow and saying, why on uh, on earth would Disney be opening a water park the first week of January? But let me just say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether, whether next week you're in celebration, it's supposed to be mid-80s. So, you know... <laughs> I kind of see it. Okay. Mind you, it'll be a lot of pasty folks from New Hampshire and Canada who will actually be swimming. And I think I've told that story previously when my family went down in early December back in the 80s, right after Typhoon Lagoon had opened. And there were Mm -hmm. were literally three of us in the tidal wave pool in the morning of December. And there were like 14 Disney lifeguards around the perimeter of the pool. And they were yelling back and forth to, to determine who had the least seniority. So if any of these idiots drowned, they were going in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who's on the college program? Here? There we go. Yeah, so. I've been, I've been swimming in February in, uh, in Disney world when it was cold. Mm-hmm. Cause you know, when Hannah was young, she wanted to go swimming. So mm-hmm. of course we went swimming. I mean, the pools are heated to 80 degrees, which they isn't are. bad. They are. But man, once you get out, oh, yeah. it's yeah. when you're in the water, it's fine. Mm-hmm. It's when you get out where, but yeah. still, I mean, it's, it's like I said, it's going to be mid eighties and in, in other central Florida weather things, I've started growing um, basil again and basil. So my, my basil pepper, and partially plants uh, all sprouted in December. Wow. <laughs> Have you got those all set up out on the porch or, or where are you yeah, doing this? Exactly. <laughs> Holy cow. Okay. It's fine, Jim. It's fine. Okay. Well, I, right. I was looking for fresh parsley. I'm making my holiday lasagnas and I was forced to go with the dried stuff because I, I couldn't find any. Got to live, uh, live in Central Florida, Jim. There we go. All right. So. All right. Uh, last bit of news. Uh, All-Star Sports reopens March 31st, 2022. With that reopening, uh, all of Disney World's resorts will be open. I don't think they're still at full capacity, mm-hmm. but this marks the uh, the last of the uh, the reopenings. No word on whether the rooms have been refurbished. I guess we'll know that uh, as it gets closer to uh, to March. It would be great to see them done in the style of what what had been done at All Star Music. We, we yeah, Nancy and I stayed there for the Disney Dish Live event, and boy, they they had really done a nice job of, of upgrading those rooms. Yeah, we'll see what happens, but I do do expect them to be uh, renovated at some point. Okay, cool, cool. All right, on to listener questions. Uh, here's one from Rick. He says, uh, hi, Len and Jim, longtime uh, listener, occasional correspondent, regular evangelist. The recent release of the Spielberg version of West Side Story sent me down a Wikipedia rabbit hole. In it, I learned that the singing voice of Tony in the 1961 movie edition was a man named James Howard Jimmy Bryant. Bryant's Wikipedia entry and the Alabama Music Hall of Fame say that in his later years, Bryant 
composed music heard at Walt Disney World and Tokyo Disneyland. Any idea what piece or pieces he might have composed? Wow. Uh, so, Jim, I think you and I both spent some time looking at this. And, and rabbit hole is the right word. Here, it Jim. is. It is. Now, Jimmy was part of the team who created area music for Tokyo Disneyland. Remember, t- Tokyo Disneyland opened in uh, April of 83. And yep. when they, they mentioned uh, Walt Disney World, really, and in fact, Jimmy also supposedly worked on music for early, early Epcot. Oh, really? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. So it's it, now my problem is I, I've got just these little handholds on the story so far. But the problem is we are in the holiday week, and so many people are, are headed out the door at Disney for the holiday. Oh, yeah. So I, I apologize, Rick. We are on the case, but it may be till the first week of January till I get some decent info from friends back in the building. But Jimmy was doing work for Disney at an interesting time. Of course, the problem is that 84 Eisner comes in and a lot of the folks who were working for Disney at that time then moved on because it's like Eisner was about, we need to get new show business people in here. But let me see hmm. what I can find out. That's uh, that's super interesting. I looked at uh, the kind of music that Jimmy did and mm-hmm. it was, you know, uh, mostly country stuff, obviously, because mm-hmm. he's in the yep. Alabama Music Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And it looks like he was a contemporary of like George Bruns and may have contributed some Frontierland background music. There you go. When Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland are in development and in construction, this is during a period where Imagineering had staffed up to over 2,000 people. And so George is, is knee deep in doing seven different pavilions in Epcot. So it's like, it's an all hands on deck and it's like, okay, we need area music for Tokyo Disneyland's Frontierland area. Who can we get? And that's the thing. I didn't want to get definitive about whether Jimmy had had worked on Frontierland at Tokyo until I got somebody to actually confirm that. That's how I remember the story. But I also Mm. remember that Jimmy may have done some work for the Canada Pavilion, which again has more of a- Ah, that would make sense too. Frontier, Lindy, right? Yeah, that's it exactly. I'm old. I'm 62. I forget things. So I would really like an adult to sort of confirm that this is what he did, right? And it's like, yeah. so so hang on, Rick. I'm on the case. I got emails and phone calls out there, and hopefully someone will get back to me and we can get you confirmed stuff by January. It might, might even be a, a decent story. By the way, I checked uh, ASCAP and they didn't have uh, anything obvious, but uh, uh, you know, I'll keep looking. That's the thing that kind of makes me crazy is if you think about how much music gets written for theme parks. And yet ASCAP for the longest time kind of had the attitude like, well, that's not real music. It's not commercial music, right? No, yeah. that's if, it exactly. So it, so it doesn't count. And yeah. it's like, well, tell that to George Bruns, who <laughs> composed hours upon hours of stuff with full orchestras in London. And it's like, yeah, it's not real music. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it totally counts. It does. It does. All right. Here's a uh, an email from Jim who says, as a huge Star Wars nerd, I'm obligated to tell you that the video with Josh Tomorrow was not the one that was pulled from YouTube as bad as it was. It was actually the one with some actor walking around the ship and then going to the lounge to hear a singer because nothing says Star Wars like going to listen to a singer at a bar. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Jim sent along the pulled video for reference. 
By the way, it stars an Imagineer named Anne Morrow, who I can only assume is related to Tom of People Mover fame. So thank you for that uh, correction, Jim. Yeah. Still, oof. No, 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 I get video. that. And in fact, the, 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 the actor he's talking about, Sean Jambrone, uh, who plays Adam Goldberg on The Goldbergs, I, I, you felt bad for the kid. They're walking him around an uncompleted hotel. And it's like, look yeah. at this. And it's like, wow. And then let's go into the lounge where the, the singer is singing. And it's like, well, it's very obvious from the footage she's not there <laughs> you know yeah, it's like yeah. you have all these reaction shots and then they're shooting the singer later it's just sort of it was one of those those, those chunks of video that was destined to fail but yeah. they thought we can save this in editing and it's like yeah. <laughs> we'll fix it in post <laughs> there we go no no so. some things you can't fix in post no it's no, like no. it's like taking a stake and saying we're gonna save the cow in post there we go <laughs> it's just not gonna happen there you go <laughs> clear way, i've got you some know, i've yeah. got some uh, some star wars stuff we can't talk about in the show but tell you afterwards oh, cool cool all right uh email from john hmm. i just wanted to point out that you have fans representing other super nerd communities besides aerospace engineers and rocket scientists i work at fermilab in suburban chicago whoa, where we do cutting edge research whoa, whoa, whoa. in high energy physics oh fermi as in enrico fermi enrico fermi yeah exactly whoa oh cool it so they call it fermilab because he was grown in a lab i don't know if you know that <laughs> oh the things you can do with petri dishes so John says, uh, think, uh, think quarks, muons, neutrinos, and other fundamental building blocks of matter and energy. I first got a taste of your data-driven approach to the Disney theme parks when I read the 2010 Unofficial Guide and started listening to what was described in that book as, quote, Lens Podcast. Oh, geez, who wrote that? Uh, scientists and engineers thrive on dissecting complicated systems and making informed decisions based on data. That is precisely what you provide, so it's no surprise to me. You've developed a following in these communities. I look forward to listening to your latest episode every Monday on my commute into the lab. Also, I once heard a strangely familiar voice while waiting in line for Slinky Dog. And by the time I realized it was Len, he was already buckled into a seat and I'd missed my opportunity to meet him someday. Thank you both for everything you do and the countless hours you must put into making such entertaining and educational content. Jim, do you have a PBS show that I'm not aware of? <laughs> <laughs> Where this entertaining and edu educational content happens? <laughs> if you look at the Elmo suit, all right, the zipper on the back. <laughs> oh, yeah, there it is right there. It's like this. It's the second half of Sesame Street. There we go. So, <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us about the time Disney threw Baby New Year off the Matterhorn. We'll be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, Jim, we are uh, at the end of the year. Yes. Uh, there is nothing like a quick recap of what happened in the year, followed by a look forward. Mm-hmm. So today we're going to do that look forward. Mm-hmm. And you're going to tell us about the time that Disneyland decided it would be a good idea to fling Baby New Year off of a mountain. There is actually footage of this. In fact, I've seen it. Yes, it, it, Tim O'Day was nice enough once to share it with me. And, and you actually got to see it at Pixar, didn't you? Right. So the, the thing Jim's going to talk about was for the longest time considered an urban legend. In mm-hmm. fact, if you go onto YouTube right now or even do a, a, a Google search, because mm-hmm. I tried this before the show, mm-hmm. to look for uh, the footage that we're about to describe, it does not exist on the internet, which tells you how special it must be. I got a chance to see it when um, our friend and friend of the show, Chris Hamm, uh, did a presentation at Pixar on the history of the corporate relationship between Monsanto and Disneyland. Mm-hmm. So Chris does this presentation, which is fantastic. He goes over like Home of the Future, Adventures Through Inner Space, uh, America the Beautiful, with footage that he had dug out of the Monsanto archives that people, Disney theme park fans had never seen. So he does this great presentation. You know, At the end of it, someone from Pixar comes up and says, well, you're, you're staying for Tony Baxter's thing tonight, right? Uh, and by the way, let me just say, Jim, if anyone ever says, you're staying for Tony Baxter's thing tonight, right? The answer is always yes. The answer is never no. Always yes. Right. Don't they give the same advice in Ghostbusters? You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You say, somebody asks you if you're God, you say yes. There we go. Yeah. Okay. So we we get in and, uh, and you know, I think we've told the story on this show before, but Tony's got 500 DVDs of unlabeled archival video from the Disney archives. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that somebody shouts out a number between one and 500. Mm-hmm. He throws that DVD in and then everyone tries to figure out what's going on while Tony takes notes. The idea being that eventually this will become part of a show, maybe on Disney Plus or something like that. But basically, it's the way to identify mm-hmm. these unlabeled film canisters from the archives. Anyway, so we're, we're going through this. And again, we've talked about it on the show before. But at one point, Tony's like, okay, I've got this special um, special piece of footage here that many of you have heard about, but no one has ever seen. So he goes in and narrates um, the story that you're about to tell. And let me just say, the video, Jim, is the most exquisite piece <laughs> of cinematography I have ever seen in my entire life. And I, I completely understand why it will never, ever see the light of day, Jim. <laughs> it, is, it is glorious. You tell the story. I'm going to interject at certain Okay. Points. Okay. Well, right. the, the very first time Disneyland did a special hard ticket New Year's Eve celebration was in 57. 7,500 people came out that night. So right. over the years, Disney turned this into more of a, a big thing. In fact, I found two posters and yeah. flyers that had been created to, to help promote the event. And they talk about how they're going to have live entertainment. I mean, for Disney fans, the fact that they're going to have the Firehouse 5 there, plus two, the uh, mm. Ward Kimball's famous Dixieland Jazz Band. 
I actually looked this up as part of uh, the question that Rick asked too, just to see if that was it. Yeah, okay, go ahead. yeah, yeah. And dancing at the Carnation Gardens, and everybody who walked in was going to be handed noisemakers and hats. But both 1961 going into 62 and 62 going into 63, they advertise as part of this the Midnight Spectacular. They actually mention on the flyer, you have unlimited use of all ride shows and attractions at Disneyland. And, and you can remember- Ooh, they weren't using the ticket system. No, that's exactly, no ticket book. Mm. And remember, the passport idea didn't start till 82. So this is 20 years earlier, you know, you could run riot through the park and ride everything as, as many times as you wanted. But they wow. wanted at midnight for everybody to gather in the center of the park to do the countdown to New Year. And it then became a notion, well, what, what do we do to get them to come there? What What's gonna make that happen? And you pointed out, Len, that the Matterhorn had been built in 59, and they started doing Tinkerbell's appearance over the park as part of Fantasy in the Sky in 61, right? Yeah, like around the summer of 61. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so they've got the line that's, you know, from the top of the Matterhorn that slides to that catch point between Fantasyland and Frontierland. In fact, I, I know we've talked in the previous show about the two catchers that are standing on the platform with the mattress yeah. the Tink would fly into, and they'd grab her like she was a taco. <laughs> so they have to set up, and somebody comes up with the bright idea of getting, well, what's the best way to have the New Year start? Let's have baby New Year make a dramatic appearance. And what better way is to have him slide down from the top of, of the Matterhorn? And and the, the question then became, well, who are we going to get to play baby New Year? And it's like, coincidentally, who had started working at Disney in 1961, but Paul Castle, the mighty might of the Ice Capades. Paul's born in Cleveland, Ohio, in August of 1923, enters okay. his first ice skating competition at the age of seven. He takes all sorts of trophies, and, and but what really makes Paul stand out is his height, or lack thereof. By the okay. end, end of puberty, he's only four feet, six inches tall, but a total athlete. And In fact, he used to advertise himself as the world's shortest barrel jumper in that you know, and he would jump over like 15 feet worth of barrels in the middle wow. of the arena. But given his size and his athletic ability, ice shows start competing for his talents in the late 40s, early 50s. And so Paul would actually play the shows against one another. He'd play one season with the Ice Capades and then keep himself to a one-year contract instead of then lean over to the folks of the Ice Follies and be like, hey, you know, I'll be available as of November. And if you want to Right. increase my salary and he did this to command top dollar for his abilities all right nothing wrong with that paul castle comes on walt disney's radar in the late 40s early 50s walt at this point had signed a deal with the ice follies at 49 so that traveling ice show would then present a featured segment in each year's show that was based on a different Disney animated feature. Year one, they did Snow White, which had just recently been re-released. Re Year two was Cinderella, uh, which had only just been released to theaters in February of 1950. And Paul, because of his small stature and amazing athletic ability, is almost always pressed the service as some sort of cute little forest creature. <laughs> some cute little forest creature. All right. All right. So he plays Jacques or Gus in the Cinderella thing, or he'll play one of the dwarfs in Snow White. And, and Walt 
you know, as a matter of course, because again, you know, this is going to go out around the country and this is representing the, the studio's output. Walt would always attend the first performance at the start of each tour of each new edition of the Ice Follies. And if Paul was in that year's edition, and, you know, and remember, there were years where the Ice Capades would, would sign him away for more money or that sort of thing. Walt would always marvel at Castle's ability because this was an athlete, a performer who would give his all. And, you know, you're sitting in the back row of an ice arena, but it's like, I can see that guy and he's doing a great job. So Walt's opening the Disneyland 55, doesn't have costumes, mm-hmm. borrows them from the Ice Capades. The year he borrows the, the Disney character costumes is when the Ice Capades is presenting a Walt Disney's toy shop number. And then the very next year, because what's the white hot thing that people are talking about in, in pop culture? But Disneyland. So the Ice Capades now has a Disneyland number. And who's playing Mickey in this presentation? But Paul Castle. And once Walt sees Paul playing Mickey, that's all he can think about. I want the static guy to come be in my park. And for a couple of years, you know, he'd attend that opening night performance and he'd go backstage and he'd deliberately seek Paul out and just praise his performance. And, oh, by the way, we, you know, we got this park in California. And if you ever want to leave the ice skating behind and sunny California, sure, look me up. And Paul's flattered, but he resists Walt's offers for a couple of years, largely because he and his wife, Alma, they met during the ice show cast. Len got married in 47. And what, mm-hmm. what's kind of funny is that once they begin doing the Disney portions of the show, They'd often be paired with Paul and Alma playing Mickey and Minnie or Jacques and Gus in the Cinderella number. And so they did this for a number of years. But what's fun in your 20s and 30s can get to be a grind as you get into your 40s. And Paul, who'd also dabbled in doing stuff in Hollywood in the, mm-hmm. the 50s, you know, for example, he appeared alongside Johnny Weissmuller, the original Tarzan in the, those MGM oh, really? Films. Yeah. This was when Weissmuller was making the Jungle Gym films. And I don't even want to think what sort of suit they put Paul in. It's like, here, you're eternal Angela, go. <laughs> anyway, but after two decades of hanging around very cold ice arenas, Paul's thinking of making a change, giving Sunny California a try. Okay. And honestly, it was it's one too many injuries that sort of factor into this. I mean, face it, guys, barrel jumping all the time has taken some spectacular falls over the years. One point, oh, he actually, really? yeah, one point fractures his leg and is out of work for months. So that's what oh, f- finally convinces him, okay, we're going to leave the ice show and we're going to go give Disneyland a try. Now, it's 61, and Paul is 38 at the time. So it's like literally midlife, he is changing his career. But Walt, you know, it, it, because he he loved that he'd landed Paul. In fact, Disney doesn't even officially have a character department at this point. That doesn't start till 63, Len. But it's like, I got Paul Castle. And at this point, you've seen pictures of the, the Mickey and Minnie costume they had at this time. It's the giant bulbous head version where Mickey, <laughs> you know, Mickey's got no operational arms. And the cast member who's playing Mickey is literally looking out the, out of the top of a top hat. No. Yeah, but that's the thing, like, Walt, it's like, scrap that costume. I, I need something, you know, this guy's an athlete. This guy's a performer. I need something where he can shake people's hands. I need things where he's looking straight out to Mickey's eyes. So, you know, literally, because he's gotten Paul Castle, Walt orders a complete change out of you know, the way characters are done to the park. And we owe a lot of you know, the way the characters are now in the Disney parks to the fact that Disney had hired Paul Castle. Okay. And Walt 
because he's got this performance, he wants Mickey everywhere now. So whenever you see Mickey on television with Walt during The Wonderful World of Color, that's Paul Castle. If you see him at a park opening, that's Paul Castle. In fact, during this period, I mean, when Walt goes and opens all of the attractions at the 64 World's Fair, mm-hmm. Paul flies with him on the corporate jet. When they oh, have nice. the Hollywood premiere of Mary Poppins in August of 64, who serves as P.L. Travers' escort on the red carpet but Paul Castle? Paul, when he would tell the story, his absolute favorite time with Walt was January of 1966 when Walt had been named as the Grand Marshal of that year's Rose Parade. And so for five hours, he's in an open car, a limousine from the 1920s with Walt, and the, the two of them are sitting in the chair side by side. You know, Paul's obviously dressed as Mickey. And they're mm-hmm. waving to the crowd, but he gets five hours alone with Walt. And they, they sit and they talk and they're obviously just enjoying the hell out of thousands of people, you know, screaming and waving and that sort of thing. And because he spent so much time doing this stuff with the Disney family, he got to know the members of the family individually. And Abby Disney, in fact, she's the one who's really been hammering mm-hmm. yeah, on, yeah. on Disney in public lately. But Abby, when she was a little girl would go backstage at Disneyland with her mom, Edna, that this is Roy O's wife, you know, that they would have just finished watching a parade or opening a show and step backstage. And here's Paul backstage, you know, in his Mickey outfit with you know, sitting at a picnic table outside, the head's upside down on the table and Paul's puffing away in a cigar. And it's like, you know, <laughs> here comes Edna. And it's like, Edna! And, you know, he gets, Edna, uh, come here. Yeah, <laughs> Mickey Mouse shouting out your mom's name. Yeah, it's not weird. No, not at all. So if Abigail has anger issues, this has nothing to do with that. <laughs> I mean, you understand her upbringing now. A lot of things make way more sense, right? There you go. <laughs> Can you imagine? Because like, I was uh, last weekend, mm. I was leaving the Magic Kingdom and going through um, the arcade. So imagine you're on Main Street USA and you're facing the castle. Um, the exit was the arcade that follows the left side Ooh. of the Magic Kingdom. So it's behind the Emporium, yeah. which is very rare. They rarely no, absolutely. That, right? absolutely. But it was open last weekend. Yep. So I'm going down it, and there were um, there were a bunch of uh, cast members back there. Mm-hmm. Who, so as soon as they opened up, I guess some cast members got caught unawares mm-hmm. that they were opening up the backstage arcade. So they were back there sort of having a break. And I can imagine like me walking back there and seeing you know, Mickey Mouse with his head off, <laughs> yelling out, Edna, Edna, come here. <laughs> That would be hysterical. It would also throw me off my head. It would. All right. But I I guess at this point, we should talk about the footage that you saw. Because again, think about it. 61, poor Paul, has only been on the Disney payroll for a couple of months at this point. And so they mentioned, okay, we're, we're doing a special show on New Year's Eve. We need you to come to the park. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah. And they had been they'd been sending Tinkerbell down this zip line for a little over a year. Yeah, and remember that was Tiny Klein, a seventy five year old aerialist. Who I mean, I love her story. She would literally take the bus to Anaheim every yeah. night and like get there at six, put on her costume, climb to the top of the Matterhorn, and get you know, they throw her off. She'd get caught in the mattresses. <laughs> Take her, make take the get down, take the costume off, get back on the bus. No, that's home. exactly. You know, 
Good check. Okay, you know, and that was the thing. Dana Paul, we're gonna get it's you know it's holiday pay, you know, and so and, and again, it's like okay, where's my Mickey costume? Well, it's not a Mickey costume. It's this costume. It's like it's a diaper and a and a top hat. It's like, yeah. yeah, okay, and and now come with us. It's like we're going to the top of the Matterhorn, and the thing of yeah. it is, the the whole of the time, it's like Paul, we we told you what we're gonna do. I mean, you're gonna ride down a zipline. You're gonna do this, and the story that Tim O'Day told is that. They get Paul to the top of the mountain, and there are now thousands of people standing in front of Sleeping Beauty Castle. And he's right. 147 feet up in the air, and it's like, I don't want to do this. So they bring him up, right? Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're, because it's a it's a union job, so there are Teamsters oh, yes. up there with him, yep. right? So he, he gets up there, and again, Paul is a smallish man. Yep. The Teamsters are, as you can imagine, larger. Mm-hmm. And the way that uh, Tony Baxter tells the story, if I'm remembering it correctly, was, uh, you know, they bring him up there. It's five minutes before midnight. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul looks down. <laughs> he, he sees all of these people and he's like, I'm not going to do it. So the Teamsters get on the walkie-talkie and they signal uh, Paul's apprehension to management <laughs> mm-hmm. about not wanting to go down the uh, the zip line. Mm-hmm. And the word come, comes back from management, like convince him to do it. Again, you tell the Teamsters to convince somebody to do something. You know what you're implying, right? Uh, and I don't know if the if the phrase "throw him off" was uttered, but maybe that's part of the story. Maybe it's not. So they they apparently strap him in, and where he was, <laughs> he was still expressing some hesitancy about the whole thing, which is a which is a uh, a euphemism for saying he fought uh, being strapped into the harness. Yeah. So they get him strapped in the harness. They check it securely. And this is like, you know, seconds to go before, before the countdown. Mm -hmm. And just as they start the countdown at five, Mm -hmm. the Teamsters throw Paul off the Matterhorn in this baby costume and he goes fleeing down the zip line. And the story of the Teamsters throwing a a small man (laughs) off, off of the Matterhorn is funny by itself, but the video gym (laughs) is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my entire life because it's Paul. Mm-hmm. So it's shot from the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine like you're looking straight on at the castle. So the Matterhorn is to your right. Mm-hmm. And you can see the zip line because this person's fairly close. And I guess they've got spotlights on it to where you can see it. Mm-hmm. And all you see is this man dressed as baby New Year. And he is, he's flailing yep. as he comes off the matter. Like he's, he's trying to grab onto anything. Mm-hmm. Like he's, his arms are spinning mm-hmm. and his legs are kicking like he doesn't want to do it. And the 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 ironic thing about that is mm-hmm. the harness is not in a fixed position. It's got a swivel built on it. Mm-hmm. So as he's flailing, he's actually rotating 360 <sighs> degrees, giving everyone a view oh. of, of him doing this. And Tony Baxter said, you know, this was obviously silent film, mm-hmm. um, but he said the thing that you can't hear is um, uh, <laughs> is the threats that were being made by Paul to kill everyone involved with the entire operation. Like he was, he was screaming, I'm going to kill all of you as he's being slung down, you know, over main street USA. And apparently the people at the ground could hear it. Above the counter. There's some profanity and stuff. It was Jim, the funniest thing uh, I have ever experienced in a Disney park. It was, we watched the video back and forth. I mean, it should, it's like, you should put yakety sacks on it and go Benny Hill. <laughs> it was so funny. And the laughs that came from it, like, again, people people had heard the story. Yeah. But we all thought it was urban legend. Mm-hmm. But then to see it, not only to see it, but I think 
Tony had like two different camera views. Could be. Of it. it was amazingly funny. Could be. Like I said, there's no way. There is zero chance that the Disney Corporation will ever release this video yeah. because, of, because of the background story. But it exists. It actually happened. We saw it, it was the, one of the highlights of that evening. He'd only been on the job at six months at this point. And it's like, it was a one-off. He only did it the one year. <laughs> you go figure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, would, I would imagine you couldn't even get him to ride the Matterhorn after that. <laughs> he wouldn't even go to that part of the park. Yeah. yeah. So apparently he, uh, he was screaming so much mm. on the way down mm. that the people who were supposed to catch him mm-hmm. – were so afraid of for their own safety, mm-hmm. like what they what he was going to do to them, that they abandoned their post, <laughs> and he hit the mattress, oh. which was unattended at like thirty miles an hour. He unstraps himself, oh. goes down. The, the what I heard from from the story was somebody found him later in the employee break room, drunk, <laughs> and then he's like, "Screw you guys, I'm out of here." It doesn't show up for work for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> That's how long it took him to, to like okay. get calm down after all. But he still worked for the company. He didn't he quit. He did. He did. And again, he he talked about that time in the car with, with Walt and how much he treasured it. Mm. And in much the same way as what happened with, with Wally Bogue, who was another one of Walt's favorites, that with Walt gone, Paul didn't get the calls for film premieres and, and that sort of thing. He was still considered the park's main Mickey. You know, if there, were, mm-hmm. there was, you know, a photo op or that sort of thing, it's like, let's call Paul. Let's get him here. But at the same time, he's also living in California. It's a a better life for his family. He's not traveling as much. So he actually stays with Disney through uh, 1986. He he does 25 years with the company. Oh, okay. Then retires. And then sort of circle back to what he used to do with the Ice Follies and the Ice Capades. He wrote a book about his career. And it was one of these things where he kept bringing it to various publishing houses and to the effect of, well, look, I want top dollar for this because I'm I'm taking you behind the scenes to the Walt Disney Company. I'm telling stories about Walt. And he Mm -hmm. just, he had a price in his mind that none of the publishing houses, especially in the 80s and 90s, were willing to to tell because, again, Disney fandom wasn't what it is today. There was no straight pipe to get to these folks. David Koenig, who, who wrote the wonderful unofficial Disney history book, Mouse Tales, he talks about how Paul, at one point, let him see the manuscript for his book. And it, it had a lot of stories about the ice follies, but surprisingly few stories about working in the Disney parks. And when he asked Paul about it, as well, look, that's the time I was in the suit and nobody knew it was me. They knew it was Mickey. And this is my life story. And you know, and here's David trying to explain to him, well, you're trying to sell this to Disney fans, so you should have some more Mickey stories in there. Right. But I did get a chance to talk with him for one afternoon, and he had some amazing Sonia Henny stories from, you know, being in the Ice Follies. Do they involve Sonia Henny's tattoo? Uh, uh, tutu. <laughs> Sonia Henny's tutu. There we go. But he did, you know, but at the same time, he, he talked about how even then, Walt was was circling the ice show because it, it, they were talking about doing yet another package film uh, like Make Mine Music. Mm. But the idea was that Sonia w- w- was going to you know, anchor one of the pieces uh, and they were going to animate, you know, do an anime piece where, where Sonia was, was skating with polar bears or something like that. Okay. It just kind of makes me sad because... That book has disappeared. Oh. Whatever he did slipped into the ether. And now, mind you, if if you do want to learn more about Paul, there's a website. It's maintained by Paul's daughter. It's called InsideMickey.blogspot.com, and you can see oh. some wonderful pictures from 
Hall's days with the ice show. There's also a couple of things of him as Mickey. But yeah, we lost him. Well, it'll be 12 years ago uh, next month. Oh. In January of, of 2010, uh, he'd been battling Alzheimer's for a couple of years. But he, in the end, it was pneumonia that took him. But 86 years old, one of Walt's favorite performers. But but as you pointed out, even when you're one of Walt's favorites, you still occasionally get thrown off of the Matterhorn. So uh, <laughs> it's in service for the company. <laughs> there you go. So. Well, that is fantastic. That's a great story. I'm glad we uh, got a chance to uh, yeah. to tell it. If uh, if anyone uh, sees Tony Baxter in the parks, mm-hmm. be sure and ask him about the time that they threw Paul as Baby New Year off of the Matterhorn. He will. Uh, I'm sure he will be delighted <laughs> to retell the story. Cool. All right, folks. That's going to do it for the Disney Dish today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. We will find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including live shows Jim and I have recorded in all four Walt Disney World theme parks. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be sharing his Aunt Betty's secret recipe, known only as the Salty Marshmallow, at Waffle Dog in 2022, a celebration of Swedish waffles on Sunday, March 19th, from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. on South Main Street in beautiful downtown Lindsborg, Kansas. Not going to lie, Jim, waffles in March sound great. I might actually go to this one. (laughs) And while Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.